This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Costa Sunglasses, made for people who live on the water, like Kimmy Werner. How do you explain to people uh, like what you do? Gosh, I mean, that that's always been hard for me, I think. Normally, I'll say I'm a freediving spearfisher woman, which really confuses people. Kimmy Werner is someone whose life revolves around the ocean. She's a former competitive spearfisher and a former chef, but gave up both of those careers so that she could spend more time trying to return the ocean to its former beauty and abundance. I guess I'd say I turned into a speaker, a filmmaker, an advocate for the environment, and I also just love to cook the food that I catch. When she was in competitive spearfishing, she was at the top of the sport. But as she kept doing it, she found that her heart wasn't in it, so she left. I could see the ocean changing. I could see the resources were different from when I was a kid. The fish stocks were different. You know, what was happening to the coral, everything. It's not every day that an athlete connects with a sponsor after leaving their sport. But it was the same values that pushed Kimmy towards conservation work that brought her together with Costa. They both prioritize the health of the ocean. I mean... It's just a perfect fit. They're a brand that, number one, they're born in fishing. And so definitely I feel a sense of belonging there. Um, But number two, yeah, what they're doing with their whole kick plastic campaign and their untangled collection where, where they're taking these fishing nets, recycling them, turning them into frames for their sunglasses and just every little detail. It is just one of the most thoughtful lines of product I've ever seen. Not only that, but with polarization that cuts down on glare and 580 lens technology that enhances the colors you need to be able to see out on the water, they're not just committed to protecting the ocean. They're committed to helping you make the most of it. Find out more at costasunglasses.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. If you're between the ages of 15 and, I don't know, 85 years old, this is a voice that needs very little introduction. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 20th Joy of Painting series. Bob Ross is a public television icon. His show, The Joy of Painting, ran for 11 years, from 1983 to 1994, and was syndicated on hundreds of public television stations. The setup was very simple. Bob, who has a beard and a big, bushy orb of hair, and wears jeans and a button-down shirt, stands in front of a black background with a canvas set up on an easel. As soon as the cameras are rolling, he starts painting and talking. And over the course of 26 minutes, you watch him paint a lush and beautiful landscape, usually full of mountains, lakes, and trees. Let's make some, let's make some happy little clouds in our world. Let's come right up here. Or maybe I should say, you watch him paint almighty mountains, charming lakes, and happy trees. Maybe back in here in our world there lives a happy little evergreen tree. Look at there. That a nice way to make a happy little evergreen? Let's give him a friend. You know me. I think everybody, everybody should have a friend. Bob Ross might be kind of an unexpected subject for the Outside Podcast, but he's one of the most recognized, best-known visual artists of his generation. And his primary subject was the natural world. It was pretty much the only thing he painted. If you've painted with me before, you know that I love to make big trees. So let's do that. I'll use old two-inch brush today. I've been a fan since I was a kid. 
When, if I was homesick from school, I would watch Bob Ross on PBS and drift in and out of his calming, mellow voice. Until the moment in every show when I was gobsmacked at how a few dabs of his one-inch brush, or some scratches with his painting knife, would suddenly turn the green and blue splotches he'd just made into an absolutely perfect waterfall, or mountain range, or forest meadow, clear as day. Now it's beginning to make a little sense. See how those dark areas end up being the nice shadows, and, and the white areas will end up being our clouds. Of course, a lot of the time what we're talking about when we talk about Bob Ross is completely separate from his painting. A lot of the time when someone says they're a fan, they're talking entirely about his soothing voice and how listening to him makes their head tingle and their eyes droop. And I don't want this to be very distinct. I want this to be very quiet, subdued, far away, gentle, soft. Think about those types of words and stuff when you're painting and it'll help your it'll help your hand go much more gentle and so that kind of brings up a question i've always wondered about how should we remember bob ross was he a capital a artist someone who was saying something about the moment we were living in or was he some kind of accidental hypnotist or maybe more of a street painter who got lucky when a tv producer found his process mesmerizing and decided to give him a show over the last couple of years, a lot of people have been asking this question, because Bob Ross is finding new fans. Almost all of his shows are now available on YouTube and Netflix, and he's just as captivating as ever. Back in 2015, the streaming service Twitch did an eight-day Bob Ross marathon that had 5.6 million people tuning in. Last August, the Wall Street Journal reported that Bob Ross Incorporated which normally handles stuff like t-shirts and paint supplies and the licensing agreements for merchandise like the Bob Ross Waffle Maker, they were petitioning the Smithsonian's American Art Museum to put his paintings on display. If an artist stands the test of time like that, he has to have been saying something. But Ross's overt message was just so straightforward and simple. In a word, kumbaya. I lived in Alaska for many, many years. And you see some of the most beautiful scenery there. God was having a good day when he made Alaska. <laughs> Which, nice as it is, doesn't explain his lasting appeal. So to figure out if Ross might have had some other, deeper artistic message, I reached out to Walt Hickey, a data journalist formerly with the website 538, who in 2014 wrote the article, A Statistical Analysis of the Work of Bob Ross. What's your, like, history with Bob Ross? Oh, man. Um, Bob Ross, I have always had a fondness for, um, I would say that a lot of people spent some early years of their life just, you know, watching PBS and seeing what happened. And Walt, like me, remembers Bob Ross as a guy who's just sort of always on TV and it was kind of pleasant to just watch him paint. He didn't ask anything of you. He just occupied your attention and showed you something beautiful. And so I came into him just as everybody else did um, when my friends were smoking pot in college and watching Bob Ross. So, um, anyway, when Walt grew up and got a job at 538, which needed counterintuitive mass appeal stories to pull in eyeballs, Walt pitched a Bob Ross story. And were you curious about Bob Ross as a person? Um, yes, I was fascinated by Bob Ross as a person. Um, he's such a big part of it, right? I mean, you enjoy the paintings because you know who and how they were made. And he was always like, he was always just kind of, he was on brand. He had a signature look, but he, beyond that, like he never really talked about his personal world all that much. 
at least not in a biographical way, so to speak. So I was always interested in him as a person and the history there and all the like kind of uh, different components that went into like, how does this happen to somebody? How do they become um, frankly, like a, like a weird PBS icon for an entire generation. But for such a well-known figure, there isn't a lot of information out there about Bob Ross. He was famously private about his personal life. But we do know that he was born in Florida, joined the Air Force when he was 18, and then spent 20 years stationed in Alaska near Fairbanks. I don't know, you do, you do 20 years somewhere and, and you kind of grow an affection for the place. And, and I imagine that like, that's kind of why he drew a lot of snowy mountains at a certain point. Like, Ross started painting while he was in the military, taking classes at the USO. But he learned the wet-on-wet oil painting technique that would become his signature style from a TV show called The Magic of Oil Painting, hosted by Bill Alexander. So we have a happy sky there, more like a turquoise sky, a southern sky. I will use uh, the kind of viridian, or what you call that... uh, Oh, I forget those names always of that uh, paint. It's a turquoise color, what you see here. You see how I put it on? In his spare time, Ross painted landscapes and started putting them up for sale. And when he realized he was making more money from the landscapes than he was from the military, he retired, went back to Florida, and took more classes from Bill Alexander. Palo green, now it gets in my mind. Oh, you know, when you're getting older, you forget. You can't. <laughs> Eventually, Ross started teaching the wet-on-wet oil painting method, and it was a student in one of those workshops, a woman named Annette Kowalski, who suggested that he paint on camera as a TV show. She could help him produce it, and over the course of 11 years, he did 381 paintings. Or rather, he did three times that many, because for each episode, he painted the same painting three times. One he did before the show, so we could look at it just off camera while he was filming. And then there was the one that you watched him paint. And then after the episode was done, he would paint a third one in much greater detail that would be photographed and included in the instructional art books that he sold. After each show, he gave the resulting painting to a different public television station to be auctioned off to raise money. Which is actually kind of remarkable considering that he wasn't paid for the show. He did it for free. He made his money selling Bob Ross art supplies. And the show just helped sell them. And things went on like this until the spring of 1994, when Ross was diagnosed with lymphoma, a cancer that starts in the immune system and grows in your lymph nodes. Aside from family and close friends, he didn't tell anyone that he'd been diagnosed. He never mentioned it on TV. And there aren't a lot of other sources of information about Ross's life. He hardly ever did interviews. So nearly 20 years later, when Walt Hickey came along looking for information about Ross's life, the last stone to turn over was his art. Walt wanted to know if you could learn anything about Ross by breaking down his paintings into data points and then doing a statistical analysis of the results. And it turns out, you could. More about what exactly you can learn after this break. So earlier, we heard about Costa Sunglasses and professional fish person Kimmy Werner, who, in addition to spearfishing and conservation work, is famous for swimming with sharks, and most badass of all, hunting octopus. Could you take me through, just when you are underwater, how do you hunt an octopus? (laughs) So, when I am hunting octopus... The process starts with just finding an octopus, which are incredibly good at disguising themselves. And so you're just kind of looking for any shadow, any shape, any color that looks a little different than everything else, and it is hard. Once she sees one, she'll take a deep breath, 
dive down. And I don't even spear the octopus. What I do is I just take my spear and I just gently, just gently kind of tickle them because they're going to go way back into their hole. And as I do that, they're going to wrap all of their legs around my spear where then I can just use my hand and grab them and pull them out. And the reason why I do that is because I really want to get a good look at what size this octopus is if it's a good size to take or not because if not then I'm gonna let it go to keep living but if it is a good size to take then what I do is I just bite it I bite it right in between its eyes and I say I do that I know exactly where the brain is I crunch the brain and it dies immediately if you think that's hardcore well you should see Kimmy's sunglasses they're Costa's made for the water scratch resistant and made from petroleum-free bioresin. Seven different lenses are available for different environments, and when you're on the water, 580 lens technology brings out the colors your eyes can struggle with. So if any octopus are headed your way looking for revenge, you'll see them coming. Find out more at costasunglasses.com. So before the break, we were talking about Walt Hickey's analysis of Bob Ross's paintings. What could Walt learn by analyzing his body of work? No, okay, so we wanted to figure out, we know that so much of his uh, effort is is at designing trees and consistently producing trees, clouds, mountains, lakes, you know the you know the beats, right? Uh, you know that once per season, he's going to paint a beach. It's going to be an experience. It's nice. You have a nice little sunset in the background. You, you kind of know what you're looking for. And so first off, you just want to inspect the data, see where you can find it, see where you can obtain it, see where you can locate all the paintings for one and then you go through one by one <laughs> there's no trick to that you know a lot of times it's just you have to go through a checklist and feel like does this painting have a lake in it yeah that's a lake is there a stream what? leading into the lake yep sorry oh i was gonna ask what what was the process how, how did you find like every single bob ross painting what was the process of hunting that down oh i think i found it off a forum I think I found like, you know what it must have been? I think it was like calendars. I don't know. Uh, This was many years ago, you got to understand. But I think I literally, like, again, this was some bowels of the internet work. But I believe I just found on an internet forum um, people who had posted, like, paintings that they had collected and whatnot. And you basically just kind of reconcile it. You find the links, you find the order. And we tagged them up with, uh, you know, 3,200-ish tags. And, uh, yeah. Walt says that when you break down the numbers, there's a couple of quantifiable ideas that form the backbone of Ross's work. For example, 91% of Ross's paintings feature at least one tree. 85% feature at least two. And you can keep on going through the set in such a way. Like, we, for instance, 39% of, of paintings contain an almighty mountain, right? And then given that he painted the mountain, two-thirds of the time there's snow on that mountain. Doesn't like hills. Bob Ross is not really a hill guy. Only about 4% of Bob Ross's paintings, in fact, feature hills. So generally, you're looking at kind of a consistent way, but he's got, you know, he's got a style. I mean, it's not just the trees. Like, about three-fifths of the paintings that have a mountain on it, he had the decency to give that mountain a friend. And overall, he was able to really kind of define a signature style. Like, he was really, I think that he had an eye for what he wanted to paint. And that was, you know, majesty. It was, it was, it was a undisturbed natural beauty. And he had a real appreciation for that. And, and it was funny when I was actually doing some more reporting on it and talking, like, he doesn't paint people. And here's where things get interesting. 
Because in 381 paintings, Bob Ross painted exactly one person. It's a silhouette of a man sitting next to a campfire and leaning against a tree. But it's not just that Ross didn't paint people. He rarely painted the things that come along with people. For his story, Walt interviewed Annette Kowalski, who originally put Bob on TV. And she pointed out that if you look at the cabins Bob painted, there's always one thing missing. You will not find chimneys in paintings by Bob Ross. We were able to find like one, but the, the idea is that chimneys were to her an articulation of man's presence, and Bob didn't want to do that. Like If you saw a cabin or a bridge or a fence, it was being, they are being reclaimed by nature. They, they are standing briefly in defiance, but they're clearly you know, losing the fight against the reclamation of the natural world. And I think that that's an interesting thing to say. When Bob Ross paints a cabin, it's rickety. A bridge, it's dilapidated. His version of an ideal landscape is one where the people have gone, and their last remnants are starting to fade away, disappear back into the forest. Because it's all pastoral, you might think he's painting a vision of the world from long ago. But I like to think that what Bob Ross was really doing was depicting a vision of the future. Like, look at how beautiful this place is, if you just take us out of it. And when you include the broken down bridges and cabins, it's a more precise placement in time. The landscape isn't separate from us, or prior to us. It's specifically still there, flourishing, after we've gone. Unfortunately, this is just a personal theory, but it would explain why the trees are so happy. And when you're painting, make up little stories. Think about the scene that you're painting. Become part of it. Make friends with a tree. Shoot, you can just drop all this stuff in. My interpretation is kind of a stretch, but there haven't been any real art critics analyzing Ross's work until just a few days ago, when the DePaul Museum of Art in Chicago included his paintings in an exhibition called New Age, New Age, Strategies for Survival. A representative of the museum told a trade publication for art collectors that, quote, Ross represents a shift in post-war art away from suffering and trauma, away from irony and academicism, toward optimism, fantasy, community healing, and teaching. This water line is your separator. It's a light between two darks, and that separates it and makes it, makes it stand out. Tell you what, we'll just use this big brush. Ready to have some fun? But even this, I'd argue, mischaracterizes the true spirit of Ross as an artist. Because if you're trying to take a measure of Ross's work, you can't just look at the paintings. More important than what he put on the canvas was the time we spent with him as he painted. That voice. His easygoing, gentle demeanor. The chance to watch a skilled craftsman at work. If yeah, we're painting mountains, as you know, you always want the top of the mountain to be more distinct than the bottom of the mountain. Because at the bottom, we have mist, and now we have wonderful pollution, and we have all these things that break up and diffuse the light, and it creates this softness at the base of the mountain. We're captivated by the process, not the product. And it's our relationship to that process that keeps Bob Ross alive in our collective memory. It's not visual art that Ross is doing. It's performance art. He was always, he's like an icon in a lot of different ways. You know, like he's got a visual look. He's got a sty- style that is is really unique to him in a way that I think is an enormous credit to him foreseeing that people like to zone in on something for 20 minutes. People like to focus. Concentration is a way of oftentimes a better means of distraction than uh, and relaxation than, you know, just like silence. Bob Ross was a skilled painter, 
but it's not his painting that we should be taking seriously. It's the fact that he was able to captivate so many people for so long with nothing more than his brush, canvas, and presence. Shake off the excess. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. This is where you take out all your frustrations and hostilities and just have a good time. There's a saying that geniuses are people who bring something new into the world before the world realizes that they want it. And if YouTube is any indication, the world wants a lot more stuff in the style of Bob Ross. Now, what I like about um, working with oil paint and... Um, Very good. I thought I'll do something that I'm passionate about, and that's painting as a flake. Of course, to do this, I'll use my painting spatula. Art is difficult to define and measure, but Ross was far enough ahead of his time that I think his show might qualify as a work of genius. A lot of times people, when they're stressed out, think that they want to be distracted, but based on some research that I actually kind of came across, it actually turns out it's more effective to be focused on something else. And I think that that might be one reason that he's so disarming and is so at ease. It's that it's not that he's like trying to like, like soothe you snake from jungle book style. He's, he's trying to do something cool. He has a very specific goal about it. He's going to take you along for the ride. He's a very competent man and he's going to make a cool damn painting by the end of it. It looks like nothing now, but you're going to like it. And, and I think that, that opportunity to focus in on creation is a very, very fun fact. And I think that that aesthetic really permeates his life. And I think that uh, we were very lucky to have him. Ross died relatively young on July 4th, 1995, at the age of 52. He was buried beneath a plaque that is either entirely too brief for someone of his reach and influence, or maybe it's a deeply profound statement about who he was as a painter, performer, and a public figure. It reads simply, Bob Ross, television artist. For what it's worth, the A in artist is capitalized. This episode was written and produced by me, Peter Frickwright. Editing and music by Robbie Carver. Special thanks to Monica Lopez for recording help. It was brought to you by Costa Sunglasses. Made for people who need water to breathe. More at costasunglasses.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.